It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. I was able to contact Julie Bragg after I saw an ad for the 2021 quilt show put on by the Lorraine County Peacemakers Quilt Guild in Ohio. Julie shared her story and also gave me information about the quilt show coming up soon on September 10th through the 12th. And I'm hoping that if you're in the area, you might be able to attend and I'd love to see you there. Julie, thanks so much for visiting on A Quilter's Life. Well, thank you, Paula. Thank you for asking me. And I appreciate you doing these podcasts and recording Quilter's Lives. And most quilters don't write down a lot of their history because they're too busy quilting. And if you're not a journalist or you don't have a diary, well, then you don't have that history behind some of these quilts. Mm-hmm. And not everyone's going to sit down and read, so it's fun to be able to listen to something while we're quilting. Let's start with, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in South Dakota. My father was a dairy farmer. My mother was a stay-at-home mother, took care of us. There were five children. One side of my grandparents was from Germany, and the other side was from the Netherlands. My German side, actually, they were born in Russia, but it was a German settlement that Catherine the Great asked German people to come over and settle north of the Black Sea. And that went on, and she gave people acres of land I don't know how many acres, but enough to farm and make a living. Well, after a couple generations, the families grew because they had many kids. Mm -hmm. And the next generation couldn't make a living on that little piece of property. And then the rules kind of changed. And a lot of the German families immigrated to the United States when homesteading came about. And my great-grandfather and grandmother came over with their young children, and they homesteaded in North Dakota. And that's where my grandparents came from, North Dakota, my German grandparents. They were the ones that lived in the sod houses at least the first couple of winters. And in the 70s and 80s, that first sod house still existed. I think now there's only a foundation of it. Oh, well, so you had the opportunity to walk through it and see it? I didn't, but my mom did. And after my mom passed away, we went up there to a family reunion, which was Bismarck, North Dakota, and they have a small museum, and the museum is called Germans from Russia, and it documents all the people that came from Russia who were 
actually German people and migrated to North Dakota. It's a wonderful little museum that holds a lot of history for those people up there and people like my family, yes. How neat to have your history documented like that where you can go and see it. Mm-hmm. So you were raised in North Dakota? Actually, I was raised in South Dakota. A part of the German family moved to South Dakota, and then when my mom met my dad, of course, his side was all Dutch. He grew up in a community where there were a lot of Dutch people in South Dakota, and so that's where we were raised, about 30 miles from the Minnesota border, where you saw a lot of farms, crops, and dairy farmers. Did you grow up on a farm? Yes. He was a dairy farmer. He had some pigs. He had cows. And at the time, it wasn't like now where you milked hundreds of cows. I think at the most, he only had 32 cows. But that's what life was like in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you ever have to help with the milking? I didn't. <laughs> I, I went out there. There were three of us girls, and then two brothers came. And Dad had a hired man for the first 10, 15 years while the girls were little. And then, of course, when the boys came along and they grew up, well, then he felt he had more help. But once in a while, when he needed an extra hand, we would have to go and help him unload the hay wagon and he would be up in the haymow taking the bales off of the escalator, and then we would be on the bottom loading it. So that's probably when we helped. And then during combine, when he needed an extra driver, well, then us girls, one of us would go out there and help drive a truck, yes. Wow. But as far as milking every day, no, I guess we were kind of spoiled. He didn't make us do that. Actually, <laughs> so I had... A great aunt, my my dad's cousin, she was in her 90s, but we started visiting her 20 years ago when she was in her 70s, and she was over in the Netherlands. I really felt at home because growing up on the farm, we would have breakfast, and then 9.30, everybody just stopped, and we would have a coffee break. You know, the adults would, you mm -hmm. know, and the kids probably had a glass of juice or Kool-Aid back in the 60s, yeah. <laughs> heaven forbid. And then we'd have dinner, which was our noon meal, and then at 3.30 we'd have lunch, <laughs> a coffee and cake or a cookie, and then at 7 o'clock we'd have supper. When I met my husband, he said, you guys eat all the time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're always stopping to eat. But that's how on the farm you do that. You needed to take a break because the guys worked hard. Yeah. And they needed that break. And it isn't like now. You didn't carry around a water bottle with you every time you went. You know, you Right. And then we you had your break. Well, then that's when you drank your milk and your coffee and your water, you know. And so going over to the Netherlands, they still do that. They always have a coffee break in the morning and a coffee break in the afternoon. 
And then if you have company at night, you'd have coffee again. Wow. Yeah, in the evening with your uh, dessert. So I felt at home. Of course, we try not to do that now. We'll have a coffee break, but we'll try not to eat anything because we don't want to gain the weight, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) We're not out on the farm actually using up those No, we're not working that hard anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a special childhood memory? Yes, as far as quilts, I do. I remember sleeping under a butterfly quilt with the black buttonhole stitch around each butterfly. But I don't remember the quilt being quilted. I think it was tied, and that's what my German grandmother did. She made a few quilts, I know, but she never quilted them. But she always tied them. And there was another quilt that was kind of like what we would call a crazy quilt, but it wasn't as fancy at all. I think she made it more as a utility quilt, but I remember it was very heavy because most of the material was wool, or there could have been some Lindsay wool in there too, and it was tied. I remember the ties were a bright red thread, and the quilt was mostly browns and dark colors, and it was very heavy. So that would have been an excellent quilt to lay under in a cold winter. Yeah. That's all I remember as far as her quilting any quilts. And my mother didn't quilt until I got into it in the late 70s. Hmm. Were you still home at the time? No. By that time, I was married and had a couple children. Did you live close to her so that you could do it together? Unfortunately, no. That would have been fun. But we left South Dakota after I met my husband, and he was in the service at the time. And then after the service, he finished his education. He got a master's. He went into the school systems, and we were living in Iowa for three years, and that's where the children were born. And that's basically where I got started in quilting. We only lived a couple blocks from a church, which we started going to. And there were quilters at the church that quilted one day a week. And so I was pregnant at the time with our first child. And I wanted to learn how to quilt because this was in 75 and they were gearing up for the bicentennial of our country. And so all of a sudden you would see a lot of the magazines of featuring quilts and all the colonial stuff and everything that people used 200 years ago for the bicentennial. And I think that's when the surge of craftsmen came about and all the quilts came into being very popular. What I think the bicentennial kind of started that off. Yeah, I've heard that. So I wanted to learn how to quilt. So I went over there knowing nothing. And the ladies over there actually taught me how to quilt. And being I was pregnant at the time, I thought right away I wanted to make something for the new baby, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't know how to piece anything but I knew how to quilt. So I ended up buying a kit where you cross-stitch the quilt top, 
and then after you layered it and everything, there were lines on it where you could do the quilting. And so that was actually my first quilt for our daughter when she was born. How neat. And then 17 months later, I was pregnant with our son. And by that time, I wanted to piece a quilt. And so one of the women taught me the log cabin. So then I went and used up leftover material that I made for maternity tops. Mm -hmm. He was born in 77, so I had all these maternity tops that were red, white, and blue because of 76. (laughs) (laughs) And so I ended up having a log cabin quilt that was red, white, and blue. And at the time, you didn't know if you were going to have a boy or a girl. So we did have a boy, but that was his baby quilt. (laughs) was this red, white, and blue log cabin quilt. And now our son has a son. And so when he was born, I gave the quilt back to my son for the little boy to use, our grandson. He uses it every night and it just thrills me. Oh yeah. Because it gets a second generation. It gets a second chance, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you have another career? Growing up in the 60s, I graduated from high school in 69. And so at that time, I loved drawing. And we went to such a small school. It was just a town of 500 people. And our school was so small that they didn't have extra classes like art classes and everything like that. And so I ended up taking drafting classes that the boys usually took. And I was the first girl to ever do that. When we had to sign up for our classes, the principal came into our room and he says, well, these are the classes you want to take for your freshman year. And the boys will check drafting and the girls will check home ec. And I already had two years of home ec in seventh and eighth grade. And my mother sewed at home. She sewed a lot of clothes for us girls. And so I thought, I've had enough of sewing. I would like to do some drawing. And so I raised my hand and I said, is there any reason why I can't check (laughs) drafting and so home ec? And I think I caught him off guard and he couldn't give me a good answer. And so I got to go to the drafting class. (laughs) (laughs) And so then I was interested in architectural at the time. And then by the time you graduated from high school, you thought of college, and I wasn't the best student, and at that time, this was in 69, so I was thinking, you know, if I had to go to school for all these years for architectural, and then I probably wouldn't use it because I'd probably get married and have kids and stay home, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So I ended up going to a tech school that had a two-year drafting program. That's what I did. And I worked for 30 years and retired from that job and worked for several companies. I worked for an architect at one time, civil engineering company, the telephone company I worked for. 
they keep records of where they bury all their cables and everything. Mm-hmm. And I worked for a chemical company, and my last company was more um, mechanical, putting paint systems into automotive factories. Hmm. And in the late 80s, early 90s, I switched over from the drawing board using a pencil and an eraser to the computer. So then I went back for a few of those classes so I could do the computer, AutoCAD and the CAD work on the computer. And so I did make a career of it. I worked for 30 years while the kids were growing up, yes. Wow. And all that plays right into your quilting, didn't it? It did. It worked very well. (laughs) (laughs) And as the kids grew older, well, then I just started quilting a little bit more, you know. And Mm -hmm. by the time they moved out of the house and were in college, well, then I was quilting quite a bit. (laughs) Well, besides quilting... What other crafts do you do or have you done? Well, as a young girl, I remember going to the Ben Franklin store and buying a knitting book and a crocheting book because I saw one of my grandmothers knitted and the other one crocheted. And I wanted to learn how to do it, and I watched them. And... Then when I went to the Five and Dime store, I realized, oh, they have these books here. So I asked my mom if I could buy a book and some knitting needles and a crochet hook. And I actually taught myself how to do it. And I think the reason why no one really showed me how to do it, because I would always watch them. I could just sit there and watch my grandmother's knit and crochet but they never offered to show me how to do it because I was left-handed. And they thought, how could I teach this girl? They never said anything, but now that I'm thinking back of it, they knew I was left-handed, and so they probably just didn't know how to teach me how to do it. So when I had the book in front of me, I actually taught myself how to knit and crochet right-handed. So that's what I still do that today. I knit and crochet right-handed, but I quilt left-handed. <laughs> when you were in school being left-handed, did they force you to use your right hand? No, I don't think that was so much in the late 50s and the 60s. They didn't give you much guidance, but they just let you do what you could do, you know. Mm-hmm. I've never had anybody trying to change me over. That's good. Yeah. And do you have any other hobbies? Well, I did, before the quilting, I got into the cross-stitch, which was popular back then, too, and embroidery. And then after my retirement, I got into spinning and rug hooking and rug braiding. And so I dabble in a little bit of each of those, but 90% of my crafting is quilting, yes. Mm -hmm. I would say quilting has kind of overtaken everything. Do you think these other hobbies of the crocheting and knitting and making rugs, 
Do you think that lends into your quilting designs or what you choose to do there? I think, well, not so much rug braiding, but the hooking. A lot of, uh, you know, your patterns can go either way, especially your applique patterns. And the cross-stitching and the embroidery, now that's becoming, the embroidery is becoming popular again, and so a lot of people embellish their quilts now with embroidery. Mm -hmm. We kind of went over who introduced you to quilting. You went down to that church. Was there a specific person there, or was it the whole group that encouraged you and you learned to quilt? I think it was the whole group. When they had a quilt frame that you sat on all four sides of it, and they were all quilting on it. And that's how I learned how to quilt, on a quilt frame. And so every time you sat down, you just sat down where there was a space. And I think I ended up sitting with different people all the time, every week that I went, and just sitting next to someone and watching them and seeing how they do it, I think... That teaches you a lot. At first, I think they probably took out some of my stitches after I left. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) if they did, (laughs) well, I evidently got better and better at it. And then I had my daughter, and then I would bring her, put her in a pack-and-play and sit there and quilt, but you know, that doesn't last too long after she started standing up and wanting out of the pack and play quilt. Well, then that's when I had to just kind of stay home. And that's kind of when I started making the second quilt and I stayed home and I pieced that log cabin, cut out every log with a scissors because rotary cutters weren't invented then. Wow. And pieced my own quilt. And since I had the two kids, I really never went back to the quilting group at the church because I was busy raising these kids and I couldn't afford a babysitter. Mm -hmm. But we would walk over and visit them once in a while. It was always fun. But we only lived there for three years. And then we ended up moving back to Ohio where my husband was from. Okay. Can you tell me how you met your husband? Well... He was in the service out at the Air Force Base, and this was in Rapid City. And I worked in another small town, Spearfish. And we got together through some friends of mine that introduced us, yes. Neat. Do you have a favorite quilt? My favorite quilt is probably the Wigs Defeat. I saw that pattern in a magazine. This had to be in the 70s while we were still in Iowa. And it was in a magazine, and it said it was a Wigs Defeat pattern. It was a picture of it laying on a bed. And I thought it was the most beautiful pattern And back then, you didn't have the internet, so it was hard to trace that pattern, like, where can I find a pattern of it? And it wasn't until in the 90s that I decided I was 
looking on the internet and the internet was pretty new then and there wasn't too many uh, quilts of that pattern on the internet but the few that I found I looked at them and some I thought oh I don't like this about it or I don't like this about it or I didn't like the color they used there and so I decided to draw my own pattern that's when I started designing quilts. Uh, once I got the pattern drawn, well, then I made my own wigs defeat quilt, and that's the quilt that is posted on your site. Nice. So people can take a look at that. Do you know how it got its name? Yes, I do. You go back in history, it was... 1830s to 1850s when the Whig Party was in existence. And then at the 1844 election, when Democrat James Polk was running against the Whig Party person who was Henry Clay, well, James Polk, as we know, won, and he became president. And evidently, some of the Democratic wives was so happy about it that they created this pattern. Hmm. <laughs> but they called it the Whigs' defeat because the Democrats defeated the Whigs. And you would see this pattern in Kentucky and Tennessee. That's where Polk was from Kentucky and Henry Clay was from Tennessee. And so you would see this pattern mostly in the southern states. And then in the 50s, the Whig Party broke up, and most of the northern Whig politicians went to the Republicans, and the southern Whig politicians went, or people, went to the Democrat side. And that's exactly what Abraham Lincoln did. He was a Whig. And when the party broke up, he went Republican. Huh. And with the Whig pattern, you wonder why would these women make a quilt and say Whigs defeat? Well, you have to look at what the women were doing back then. They weren't involved in politics. They didn't have a voice. And so a lot of their political influence and preference came through in their quilting, in the quilts that they made and the titles they gave the patterns. That was their voice, you know, in yeah. politics. Hmm. If you look at the Whigs' defeat quilts that are the earlier quilts, a lot of them are red, white, or blue. They're very patriotic. And a lot of them were done in red, white, or blue. Or what was popular in the 1850s was the white and the green and the red quilts. And you see a lot of that. If you look on the Internet and Google Wigs Defeat Quilts, this is what you see. Being that, and that's what I saw at first, I didn't really want to do a red, white, and blue quilt, so my wig's defeat ended up just being a navy blue and white. And it's so pretty. 
Thank you. Do you lean towards the blue as a favorite color palette, or do you have another favorite color palette? I do use blue. I like blue, but I I can't say it's my very favorite color, or I, I probably don't have a favorite color, but the last 30 years I have leaned towards the 30 reproduction materials. That's because I like history. When I think of a quilt, I think of the colonial times when you really use quilts as a bed cover, something to keep warm, something to touch and cuddle up with. I don't really have a favorite color, but I do like the reproduction materials. Yeah. Is there a tool that you like using when making your quilts that you feel like you just couldn't do without? My favorite tool, if you want to call it a tool, is my thimble. (laughs) Being a hand quilter, I do quilt the majority of my quilts by hand. And how can you do that without a thimble? I have searched. Every time I go into an antique shop, I go to the cases where they have the jewelries and everything and thimbles and the silverware, and I look at their thimbles, and I'll buy an antique thimble before I'll go and get a brand new one because I just think some of them are very beautiful. I've gotten some brass ones. I've gotten some sterling silver ones, and they're still workable. I use them all the time. Hmm. And another favorite tool of mine is the bias tape maker. And I use that to make my vines. I love to applique, and if the quilt is pieced in the center, well, most of the time I will probably put a vine and some leaves and flowers around on the border. I'm just trying to picture that. That will be really cool. I've made several quilts for the library, and this year's Guild Raffle Quilt is one of those quilts that is pieced in the middle, and then there's a vine around the border. How neat. Now, do you like the whole process of quilting, or is there a specific part of it that you like better? I like the process from the beginning to the end. I love picking out the materials. That's I think that's the most important part is to get the right colors and the right color combinations and have all the different patterns and prints fit together. I enjoy cutting it out. I'll usually cut out the whole quilt in a day or two. Probably the piecing is the least of my favorite. That's probably why I have a lot of applique quilts. I love to applique, and of course, I love to quilt the quilt because I have sent very few of them to the long-arm quilters. As long as my fingers can work, I'll keep on hand quilting. Nice. Tell me about your worst quilting experience. I wouldn't say I had a worst quilting experience. I did a quilt once 
with Amish colors, but for some reason I didn't pick an Amish design, and I don't know why I did that. So I still look at that quilt today and thought, why didn't, you know, I, I wanted to use the Amish colors, but why didn't I use an Amish pattern? I, I must have had a, a different pattern in mind, and I thought, I'll do that. And then that way I get this pattern and the colors I want, but it just didn't work out that way. And that was probably the quilt that I kind of regretted the most. I hand quilted the whole thing. And there's an inch grid on it, and so there's a lot of hand quilting on it. And it's a nice-looking quilt, but it has Amish colors and it has a Swedish woven heart design on it (laughs) (laughs) to this day i don't know why i did that (laughs) (laughs) oh you mentioned amish colors can you tell me what those colors are well uh, there's a lot of black and then there's burgundies blues greens they're usually all solid because an Amish person wouldn't use a calico in mm-hmm. their quilt. They don't want to show off. They want to be plain. And the design would probably be a simple design. Okay. Like yeah. a block within a block. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes just strips of different colors, like a bar quilt. Why do you make quilts? What has drawn you to this craft rather than using your time on other things? I think it was just the way I fell in love with the colonial times and the history of the colonial times. They didn't have blankets. They had quilts, and they had to make these quilts. And they used their scraps, and the women came up with all these wonderful block patterns that are still popular today and they just look so comfortable and cozy that I wanted to recreate that in my own life. Who do you usually make the quilts for? I've made a lot for my family. I made a quilt for each one of my kids when they were born and then when my sisters and brothers started having children I would make a quilt for their family. When we built our house, I made a quilt to go on our bed, which I used for many, many years until the binding started to wear and tear. So I thought, I need to put this away and make another one. (laughs) By that time, the kids were graduating from high school, and I decided to make each child of mine a graduation quilt from high school and my two children were the oldest of all the grandchildren on both sides of the family on my husband's side and my side so after that I thought I'll make a graduation quilt for each of my nieces and nephews that graduated from high school. And so I ended up making 17 or 18 quilts during the course of 10 to 15 years until Mm -hmm. the last one graduated. (laughs) 
I bet by the time you got to the end of it, they were really looking forward to what you would come up with. I think so, and I hope they weren't disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) The novelty quilts were, uh, the novelty material was very popular. And so if one of my graduates was a golfer, or he liked baseball, or two of them were rodeo people. They lived out in South Dakota, and they did a lot of rodeo. So, of course, I bought horse material for those two boys. And so I would incorporate their hobbies or their likes with the novelty materials. Or if they played football or something. Yeah. Or soccer. And so it was fun because it got me away from my reproduction material. It got me into bright colors and fun stuff. So it was kind of fun to do that. I hope they liked it as much as I liked doing it. I'm sure they looked forward to those. What are you working on right now? Actually, I don't work on one thing at a time. I usually have about three or four projects (laughs) going And right now, I'm making placemats for my daughter. They moved into a new house last winter during COVID. And we're going to see them in August for the first time because she lives overseas. We haven't been over there for more than two years. So I'm bringing her new placemats for her new kitchen. And then I'm putting together a quilt that I pieced a couple years ago. I'm going to put it on the frame. That will be my next quilt on the frame. Plus, I'm making a quilt for a friend of mine whose son just retired from military life in the service. His career was in the military. And I told her I had all this material and would love to give it to her. She's going to come and help me sew on it, and she's going to do most of the sewing. She's a beginner, and so I'm going to kind of work her through it and help her make this quilt for her son. Oh, neat. So that way you get to help introduce this wonderful craft and hobby to someone else. Yes, and use up some of my stash that I've been accumulating all these years. Share a quilting tip with us. I think the best tip I could give a beginner quilter would be staging your pieces. I have a design wall. If you don't have a design wall, take a plastic tablecloth with a flannel back You can lay it on the floor, hang it over, hang it up some way, but it's excellent. You can lay your pieces down, and then if you need to put it away, you can fold it up, and when you unfold it off of this plastic tablecloth, the pieces stick onto the flannel, and everything's in place the way you left it. And to just... Arrange your pieces and, you know, walk by it, go in and out of the room, look at it, glance at it, 
And if something bothers you, well, then you'll know it. And I think uh, staging and auditioning, different colors, different blocks, whatever you're working on, I think that's very important to stage it and audition different things on a design wall. Mm-hmm. Now, you're part of a quilt guild in Lorain County, correct? Yes. I belong to Lorain County Peacemakers, and that's in Lorain County, Ohio. That's the county west of Cuyahoga County, which is Cleveland. There's only one large quilt group in Lorain County, and we meet once a month, and this will be our fifth quilt show. We started out in 14, and we were supposed to have a quilt show last year, but because of COVID, we didn't. So now we're having our quilt show in September of 2021. And that's September 10th through the 12th. Yes, it's three days, Friday the 10th, 11th, and it ends on Sunday, the 12th. And I saw that this quilt guild was established in 1980. That's quite a while to have a guild, isn't it? It was. And unfortunately, I didn't join the quilt guild until about 95. It was established in the 80s, 1980. And last year it was 40 years old, uh, 40th anniversary. And that's one of our challenges this past two years was to make a 40th anniversary quilt. And it had to be 40 inches square. And it was also supposed to be at our 2020 quilt show. And so a few of us have made these anniversary quilts to uh, represent what we feel the guild meant to us or what the quilt guild does for us and how we want to express that in this quilt anniversary. Oh, neat. And will those be at this year's quilt show then? Yeah, the ones who have made the 40th anniversary quilt in our guild, it will be displayed in our quilt guild, and we have other challenges, too, that we'll display there, along with all the other quilts that the members have made in the past couple years since our last quilt show in 18. Wow. And so I'm looking for a good turnout, and we hope to have at least 150 quilts to show. That's a lot of quilts, and were they all made by members of your guild? Yeah. Right now we have about 80-some members, and to put a show with 150 quilts, I mean, that's possible. Some women make one quilt, some women make four quilts, And we managed to get around 150 quilts. Wow. So if I come up 
from Marietta to the quilt show. How long should I plan to be able to go through the whole thing? I think you would be able to entertain yourself for at least a couple hours. (laughs) (laughs) We also serve refreshments there. In the past, we would have sandwiches like a hot dog or a sloppy joe or a chili dog and some homemade desserts, brownies and cookies and coffee and water and soda pop. And we have tables where you can take a rest and take a break because, you know, when you walk around, you get tired. Some people can't be on their feet that long. Mm-hmm. And so we give you a chance to rest. And then we also have vendors there. We have quilt shops that come in and vend their wares. And we try to get vendors that have contemporary material, reproduction materials, different styles, different patterns. We try to have a good variety, something for everybody. We also have Chinese raffle baskets that you can buy tickets for at the quilt show. And I believe this year we're going to have 40 baskets. So I'm sure... Anybody who'd buy some raffle tickets for the baskets can find a basket that they would just love to win. And we also have what we call a country store. It has been gently used items that quilters have donated. And it's kind of like a garage sale. Mm -hmm. And so you can pick up some past issues of quilting magazines that you never had a chance to buy before for a very reasonable price, just dimes and nickels and quarters only, you know. Everything goes very reasonable, very cheap, and we manage to do very well at the country store, and the money goes to the quilt guild then. And it's all donated by the members. All the quilts in our quilt show are made by the members. We've always managed to get enough quilts for our guild that we don't have to reach out and ask the public or another quilt guild to help us show quilts in our quilt show. So, yes, going back to your question before, Yes, all the quilts hanging in our quilt show belong to our members. Sometimes we even have some antique quilts that have been in the members' family or that the members have accumulated over the years, bought from other families or from antique shops. And so it's nice to see an antique quilt once in a while, too. Yeah. That sounds so exciting. It would be great to get out again and see what y'all have made. It's going to be exciting because we've had the past year and a half to two years, it's been kind of dry as far as quilt shows go. But I think starting this summer and this fall, you're going to see a lot of guilds getting ready for their quilt shows. Yes, we're all excited to do this.
Yeah. Again. And we have a lovely place. We have our quilt show in the New Russia Township. They call it a lodge because driving up to it, you think you are driving up to a lodge. And it's a beautiful venue where they host wedding banquets and events like ours. And we rent this out and have our quilt show in it. And it's a beautiful venue. And how much does it cost to get in, and is there a price for parking? Parking is free. There's a large parking in the back, and we charge $5. That $5 will give you also a ticket for a raffle drawing for a prize. So I would say if you'd come, you could at least spend two or three hours. That sounds like so much fun. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I hope you do come. That would be great. I put it on my calendar. Oh, good. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening.